Hey, good morning, everyone. Good Erev Shabbos. Boot camp, Parshat. Uh, what are we up to? Va'ira. Okay, very good. Tav Shanai and Gimel. We want to thank the series sponsor, Ilana Mark Rothenberg, Rachel Feiner, memory of Azriel Benyako Feiner. Big Eagles fans, but uh, hopefully they have a bad Mutsu Shabbos. And uh, this week's co-sponsors, nice family. Renee and Howie Blumenfeld, Tammy Evanen-Shakter, memory of Avram Yosef and Yisrael Shalom. Remember your father very fondly. Chaya Mark Goldsmith, memory of Parrots, Ben, Hechaver, Rav Moshe. Okay, we'll do something a little different today. I usually try to uh, present a few different approaches, but today's boot camp is basically going to be uh, Orachayim HaKadosh boot camp. You know, the Orachayim HaKadosh lived uh, 1600s, 1700s from Morocco, eventually makes his way to the holy city of Tzfat where he's buried. It's very interesting that uh, when I was growing up, a long time ago, so I used to daven at times at a Hasidic Shtibol, and they always uh, studied the Arachayim. I didn't stick around, but they always studied the Arachayim. The Arachayim, he didn't have payas. I mean, he may have had payas, but he had nothing to do with Hasidism. You know, it wasn't really hit, uh, big in Morocco. It was just the beginning of Hasidus. But for some reason, the Hasidim adapted the Arachayim. Now, there's a reason for it, most likely. I've never seen anything on it. What the Arachayim writes in his introduction is I'm presenting everything on Chumash. You know, you have certain Rishonim, they have uh, methodology. He says, I'm throwing in the kitchen sink. It doesn't mean there's no methodology, but he really has everything in there, from Pshat, Drash, he talks about it, Kabbalistic, and uh, the Hasidim are very fond of Kabbalistic teachings and Sod, etc. Personally, and it's been very hard for me to study the Arachayim, because the way most of the volumes of the Arachayim is just big paragraphs, and I'm not sure where to put the comma, where to put the period. One thing leads into another. So a few years ago, Baruch Hashem, uh, Masadarav Cook put out an annotated version of the Arachayim. It's in Hebrew. Also, there's another great organization. I think this Kverach the Migdalos, they put out, I guess, sometimes during the week. They, they, they have put out parts of the Arachayim. So when it comes to uh, this week's Parsha, when it comes to the Makos, the Arachayim is... Uh, Everything the opposite of what I just said. He's totally structured, and he probably is always structured. I just don't always get the structure. And what he does is he tries to put all the makos together, look at them as a group, and do an analysis of uh, what's similar between certain makot, what's different. And this is what a lot of the Rishonim do. Now, he's not a Rishonim, he's an Akram, but a lot of Rishonim try to come up with a certain uh, theme. What's the theme of the makos? You look at the Ibn Ezra, for example. I'll mention some other Rishonim. Just very briefly, the Ibn Ezra says that the Makos, some of the Makos actually impacted the Jews as well. And he goes Maka by Maka. You look into the Rambam, where does the Rambam discuss the Makos? In Hilchos Shuva, because the Rambam says through the Makos we can learn a lot about freedom, free will. It's the question that everyone always asks, how could Hashem harden uh, Paro's heart? Don't we have free choice? So the Rambam comes up with an approach. It was a punishment, right? You have free choice, but sometimes if you don't use your free choice, God could restrict your free choice. Rabbi Soloveitchik pointed out, you see how much we're doing besides the Arachayim? <coughs> Rabbi Soloveitchik pointed out that the Ibn Ezra says to the Rambam, chas v'shalom, right? Not that they were talking to each other. A Jew never, or non-Jew never loses their freedom of choice. It could just be, re- it could be held back. You know, I may have a certain type of for cheeseburgers. You may have a certain type of for something else. 
So we have a certain nature that goes in a direction. Paro had a certain leaning of being a stiff-necked person, a hard, a hardened heart, but he still had the freedom to, to do the right thing. So th- these are, this is what happens when you get to the Makot. You want, there's a whole safer, I think someone published on the Makot called Mida Kenegan Mida. Uh, how every Makot is a Mida Kenegan Mida. And if you're not happy with the 10 Makos, you open up the Haggadah and you get a bunch of more, more Haggadah, uh, Makos. So let me try to explain what's bothering the Arachayim. And uh, this is going to satisfy everybody, whether you're a Chassid, you're a Litvak, you're a ra- whatever, rationalist, uh, irrationalist, whatever it is, the Arachayim here, I think is, to me, it's a huge Kiddush for the year. Baruch Hashem to the uh, Masadarav Cook edition that helped me through this. Okay, so he says the following. I'm going to start off with a Pasuk relating to the Tzvardea. Tzvardea is the second uh, of the Makos, the frogs, or whatever animal. Vayikra paro l'moshe li'aron. Paro calls to motion to Aaron. This is Perichas Pasuk Dalit. Those listening online, uh, if you're sitting at a pool, wherever you may be, it's good to have a Chumash out. Vayikra paro l'moshe li'aron vayomer hatiru el Hashem. I can't handle these frogs. So what I want you to do is dive into Hashem. Hatira is an interesting language, but let's just call it dive into Hashem. V'yaser asvardim and remove the svardim from me. I'm reading this very carefully. Umeami, he cares about his nation as well. For my nation. You do that, we have a deal. I'll let the Jews go and serve Hashem. Now, how many times... Here's a trivia question that I'm going to answer. How many times does uh, Paro say to Moshe, to Moshe and Aaron, Hatiru el Hashem? That's a, this is an example where you got to go study, you have to study the Makos very carefully. In this week's Parsha, only three times. We have seven Makos in Parsha's Ve'era. We have three in Parsha's Bo. In Parsha's Bo, there's going to be one time as well, but I'm not going to get through Parsha's Bo. We're going to deal with the seven this week. There's only three times that he asks, pray to God for me. Now, what happens to the rest of the Makos? Even this whole concept of Paro saying to Moshe, pray to God, is a little bit strange, especially if Paro himself actually uh, believed his PR that he was a God, right? And maybe he did have some kind of belief, or he was, uh, what do you call him, a narcissist? But at the end of the day, you see over here that he really believed in the real Hashem. Because when things got really bad, he wanted to uh, get it removed. And he realized he couldn't do it. His Khartoumim couldn't do it. His magicians couldn't do it. Only Hashem could do it. So it's a very interesting personality. If we put ourselves, Chas Shalom, but sometimes you can learn from it. If you put ourselves into Paro, like how do we relate to Hashem? When do we ask Hashem for things? You know, do we only call on Hashem when things get really desperate? Or how about when things aren't desperate? Do we, do we relate to Hashem? So there's a lot, you hear this? There's a lot to learn from Paro. But still the question is, why the three Makos? I'm going to go through, I have enough time, Baruch Hashem. If not, I'm still going to have enough time to go through seven Makos very quickly. And you're going to, there will be tremendous lessons. And what the Arachayim does over here, it's almost all based on Pshat. That's why I love this so much. It's almost all based on the Pesukim, with a little help from Medrash. So when it comes to Dam, he, uh, he basically handles it, Pyro, until it goes away. Now, Dam was not easy. All of a sudden, you know, your water supply turns to blood. Imagine everybody this morning, you know, you took a shower and blood comes out. There could be tremendous panic. 
So Paro never asked Moshe to have Hashem remove it. By the frogs, he does. And we're going to go through the other ones that he does as well. So when it comes to Dam, if you want to look at the Pasuk, Perigzayim, Pasuk, Chav, Gimel, Paro waits it out. You know, I'm a tough guy, or I'm the God. I can handle Dam. And the Arachayim says, because at the end of the day, his life wasn't on the line. The Egyptians' lives weren't on the line. His conclusion is going to be that the only time where Paro reaches out for Hashem's assistance is when his life is on the line. Anything short of, you know, Hatzalas Nefashos, Bikoch Nefashos, he says, I can handle it. So in a way, you see, he's not really the most idealistic guy. If he was really idealistic, he'd be, what do you call them, the Shahids? You know, he'd say, listen, I'm willing to die. He was not willing to die. He was willing to let other people die. But he wanted to live. Pyro wanted to live. So, but he restricted his calling out to Hashem only to the most extreme. But what I want you to understand very briefly, we're going to go through the Makos, is why is, for example, Svardea threat into his life, but not Dom? So we'll go through each one. Because we see, when it comes to uh, Dom, he goes back to his house. He doesn't really pay much attention to it. This is where the Arachayim starts to develop his theory. So he says the water supply, according to the Medrash, the Egyptians could purchase from Jews. Uh, kids learn all these different uh, agaritas of what happens. But he's saying if you go according to some of the Midrashim, they could have gotten water. And the Pasuk itself says that if they dug deep enough, you know, they called the water company in, they were able to go down, and they were actually to have water. So, you know, at the end of the day, Paro said it's an inconvenience, but I don't need Hashem for this. So you motion, I don't take a hike. What's, what about Svardea? Like, what's the big deal? A couple of frogs here and there. You know the famous question, just so we throw in the stipler, like I always like to do. The, the, it says, Vatal HaTzvardea. There was a big frog. It looks like Lashon Yachud. The Pashup shot is just saying that's what it was in their eyes, but at the end of the day, there were a lot of frogs. So Rashi points out they kept hitting a frog, and every time they hit a frog, another frog came out. Now, this is a sidebar. It's not the Archaim. How could this be? You know, Egypt was the most intelligent nation at that time, the most sophisticated. Any idiot understands that if you keep hitting frogs and more frogs come out, again, it's not the natural thing that happens in real life, but this was a miracle, well, you stop hitting the frogs. So you know what the stipler said? That's kas. When you have anger, you lose control, and you do things that end up being uh, self-defeating. That's a sidebar. It's a beautiful idea I always like to mention. But what happens to frogs? So if you look into the psukim very carefully, the frogs got into the guts, literally, of the people. You know, the frogs had two main elements. Number one is they made a lot of noise. Okay, the noise Pyro could handle. He didn't call Hashem for the noise. But then they got into the kishkas or into the intestines. They got inside of everybody. What does he say? Get rid of the frogs, me many. And by the way, they were making a lot of noise. It wasn't just like an upset stomach or if you had some chalant. The frogs were eating up people. And that's why he points out, as uh, Rashi says, it was going literally betoch me'ehem. So in this situation, Pyro said, listen, I have no solution. No one could help me. I want to live. So he davens, or he doesn't daven himself, which in itself is fascinating. He wouldn't humble himself by davening out to God, but he says to Moshe and Aaron, you daven for me. You know, as much saris as we're having in life, chas v'shalom, and maybe you're going to go to a chasidish rebbe, or maybe you'll go to someone else to daven for you, which is okay, but you still, what are they going to say to you? Daven for yourself first. 
Paro didn't have that concept. So there's so much here to learn about. We'll quickly go through the rest. Now, Keenum, I wouldn't like lice. I don't know if a guy with my head of hair would get, you know, what, what exactly lice would do. But it's not comfortable. It's not life-threatening. It's external to the body. And he basically says, I'm not going to, I don't need God over here. I'm only going to bring God into the conversation when it's life and death. Now, this raises this whole separate question. You know, according to some of the Rishonim, each makkah is worse and worse. But you don't necessarily see that, at least from Pyro's perspective, because to him, the perspective isn't the amount of pain you're going through, it's what's the long term. You see, Tzvardea threatens his life. Dom and Kenem didn't th- threaten his life. Then you get to number four. What's the fourth makkah? Dom, Tzvardea, Kenem, Arov. Wild beasts all over the place. What happens here? Vayomer Pyro, this is Pasuch Avdalat, Hatiru Badi. He says, Davin for me. At this point, for some reason, he forgets about his uh, nation. What do you mean, Davin for me? So what's happening during Arov? What was the concern? That the wild animals are going to run wild. They're not going to know any borders. And they're going to end up killing me. He was scared of wild animals. These were not just a few deer in his backyard. So he says, Hatiru Badi. So this is the second time of three in our parsha. Then let's go quickly. We get to Dever. What's Dever? It was an epidemic of animals. It wasn't classified by the uh, World Health Organization as a pandemic. There were animals that were dying. Okay, this was the, China, this was not, this was the Egyptian virus. Okay, they had some monkeys dying, they had other monkeys, but no, it didn't affect him. Right? He, he, was, he was fine with uh, sick animals. Nothing about calling out to Hashem. Then we get to number six, Shechin. What shechin? Shechin's pretty tough. It affected everybody. They were boils, blisters, rough blisters. The Arachayim says, if you look at a close reading, maybe the boils didn't actually impact Pyra. But either way, this was not a question of life and death. So he could take a lot of pain. Life and death was the only time. We're moving quickly. Finally, we get to seven, and this one's incredible. This is like slam dunk, home run, Arachayim. It comes to Barad. Now, if you look on the surface, Barad, I spoke a little bit about Barad this week in Shul, and I'll do it again in the Medrash. Barad was hail. It's a hailstorm. It really doesn't seem like the worst of the Makos, because you actually find in Barad that there were those that were Yirei Hashem. We'll have to figure out in the Medrash here tomorrow who are these Yirei Hashem. And they took their animals inside, or they stayed inside. And the Barad did not uh, get through the wall, didn't get through the sailings, so everything could have been uh, protected. So Pyro, why is he getting so nervous? Like, this seems to be a great challenge to his theory. But when it comes to Barad, what does he say? Hatiru el Hashem. I want you to dive into Hashem. So the Archaim here says an incredible thing. He says, if you look at what it says by Barad, right before Barad, it says, Vatahalach esh artza. There was fire coming down with the barad, vayihi barad ve'esh. What does this sound like? Does this bring back any memories from Sefer Beratius? Sodom, right? So you know, these evil guys, they have a little book and they keep track of uh, all the punishments from the past. So you have a Pasuk, Parakutes, Pasuk of Dalit, in Parshish Vayera. This is with Sodom, where Hashem warns that the entire Sodom is gonna be destroyed. You know, maybe a few people are going to be able to slip out the back. Not so clear. But Hashem himtir al-Sodom ve'al-Mora, gafrus ve'esh, me'esh Hashem and Hashemayim, and you match up the psukim. 
So with, the, with this Maka as well, it's not that the Barad was so dangerous, it's what he thought was coming after the Barad, that I'm going to be, I'm gone. I'm just going to be like Sodom. So over here, what do they say? No atheists in a fire hole. No atheists in a foxhole. I'm going to reach out to Hashem. So I think the main message over here is not just about Pyro. It's easy to look at this guy and say what kind of fool he is and what kind of uh, strange relationship that he had with God. But I think the Arachayim is trying to bring it home to us, which he always does, is that we should look at our relationship with Hashem. When do we call out? Is it only at desperate points? Do we express gratitude to Hashem? Are we looking for protection? And uh, Baruch Hashem, we all have, or have the ability to have, a much more normal relationship with God than just this desperate relationship with Hashem. Okay, thank you, everybody. That's the Yerachayim HaKadosh for this week. It's always better to look inside.